right, all right. Well, here we are. It is Unapologetically Black Unicorns, and we have yet another episode with another fantabulous guest, and I would like them to introduce themselves. So, Zay, can you introduce yourself? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Zay Okoronta. I am a Black, queer person of Nigerian descent. I am based in Madison, Wisconsin, and I work at a warm line hotline program, um, and I love working on peer support in crisis. Awesome. Awesome. So this is just so fortuitous in this way that, you know, the beauty of social media, I know there's a lot of attention now on social media and the harms of social media, but the beauty of social media is you do get to meet really interesting people and share really interesting stories. And on uh, one of my uh, platforms, I posted a blog post about, I think it was informed consent. And then I get these like heart emojis and, <laughs> you know, I'm like, who is this person? Um, and I, I think you might've made a comment too, Zay. And then I reached back out and said, well, wait, what do you do? Tell me about it. And I have been to Wisconsin actually and visited peer respites there. I think I visited too. Don't think I went to where you are, but um, that's how we actually got connected. And that's why we've not met in person, but have been chatting about things in the peer space. So how did you get into all of this? It is, it's been a long winding journey. I feel like the short version of that is um, I'm a person that has a heavy amount of institutional harm that I've experienced throughout my journey, mental health, substance use, all the things, just like what I consider to be like my life, the cards I was dealt. I did not have access to culturally competent services. I've been over-prescribed, misprescribed, ill-prescribed, ill-advised, taught that I was an unreliable narrator for my own experience. And um, the majority of my healing path has been seeking my own personal meaning for what I make of my experiences and uh, being in a state of active resistance against the narratives placed upon me. The long version of that is that I have a lengthy history in nonprofits and experienced also a lot of harm implementing um, equity-based programming, culturally responsive services, and I was actually working as a clinician um, and I'm not a credentialed person. I, I was just doing a little substance use counselor part in my journey that ended quickly. And I ended up in a state of crisis when I was overseeing a uh, Afrocentric strengths-based program for black and brown families. And I had no one to call because the people I would be calling would be my colleagues. So I, I called a warm line and in a state of being on medical leave actually at that point because of how severe things had gotten on my end. I was surprised when I walked in on my first day of a job and it was the warm line I had called not only six, not even six months ago. Oh, wow. Wow. That's so that's, first of all, I'm glad you called the warm line and I'm glad you found the support and care that you needed during such a rough time. So, and that you walked in and it was like, oh, wait a minute, I've, I've, your voice sounds familiar or whatever it was that made you recognize it was the warm line that you had called. So um, when you were going through that hard time and you're supporting Black families, is that when you were kind of realizing not just because of your own journey, but also supporting other Black families that, okay, wait a minute, this is not really quite working for us. We need something a little bit different. Absolutely. The program was based on this premise that us as, quote, clinicians could do what's called self-disclosure, which I just think is real talk. Um I had been slated with calling the entire Warmline backup log for the clinical outpatient unit, and it was hundreds of people waiting, and it was in the wake of George Floyd. It was the summer 2020 and the pandemic. I was the intake coordinator at that time, and I was charged with doing things like suicide risk assessments and 
calling in people to see where they were at case management wise. And because of the self-disclosure, you know, it was probably the only position I, it was my introductory to peer work as I would know it as much peer as you can be in that setting. But I, I would come up against situations and say, I can't report this person. I won't, you know, this is, this is passive. This is not something to be acted upon. And, and because I understood on a personal level, some of the things the folks I was sharing with, I, I did not agree with the mechanisms they were asking me to enact upon my own community. I, I saw it as harmful. I saw it as deconstructive and I saw it as opposing to the narrative our program stood for, which is resiliency and, and hope and cultivating the strengths of a people whose culture has been lost and, and discarded. And um, I could no longer do it faithfully. And it, it led me to, to vacating the position because I, I didn't believe it was ethical for me to be in that role as a person against my own community. Yeah, I could see how that can cause so much emotional distress because you're, it's like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you have to make the decision for your own self-care and self-preservation. So when you kind of move forward to coming to the warm line and, and doing that kind of work, did that feel closer to what you had hoped? Was there still something missing, nothing missing? Like, what was that like when you when you started this new thing? So my story is actually really funny. Um, I was just scrounging the bottom of the barrel and indeed looking for jobs. And I saw a case manager role. And in my interview, I disclosed, okay, I've just done this peer training thing. My supervisor says, you know, can I have an off the record conversation with you tomorrow? I have this other job I think you'd really like. And it was a supervisor role at the respite warm line I oversee. My first day, I did not even know we had a respite. I said, okay, I'll do this peer services thing. You have a community-based program. She says, yeah, go over and check the respite out. You know, it's down the street. I think you'll really like it. There's there's some people there, you know, hang out with the peers. And what I stepped into was unlike anything I'd ever known. I, I did not know what a respite was. I did not know what a warm line was. I, I took the job with no job description at all, um, really not knowing. And this is my life. It's been a series of blind steps out on faith in myself, um, being led sometimes by something I think is greater than me. Um, in, in my West African culture, you know, we, we call that kind of the direction that the gift that our ancestor bestowed upon us. That's my chi leading me um, toward what my destination is. And, you know, I, I didn't know what, what a crisis alternative was. I didn't know that's what it stood for. And I learned my job as I, as I walked into it and I was supposed to be in a cubicle in an office. And I, I came in the first day and I said, you know, I want to work out of the house. And so I worked out of the house and I became deeply invested in something I saw as being severely neglected. There had been nobody on the site, really nobody supporting the peers. There was no oversight when I came in. It was seen as kind of this extra thing that was maybe um, just not being tended to in the way that it was deserving of. And I poured my heart into it because it's where I, I figured out I would belong. And, and if something like a respite had been in existence when I was struggling, when I had my own challenges, my outcomes would have been very different. Um, I fell in love with the respite and I, I didn't even know what I was walking into. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are parts of our stories that are somewhat similar, right? Where um, I think the first respite I saw, I'm trying to remember probably hadn't seen when I'd had heard of these respites, these things called respites. And I was, you know, thinking of my own journey or was still on my own journey. And every time I needed a little bit more support, 
versus, you know, than what's offered if you go into a community program, which is like you go in for a couple of hours and then you have to come home. And it was the coming home part, even though I live by myself, it was sort of this coming home part that it was like, but there's nothing here. There's no support here. I need, I need a little bit more in the evenings and, you know, to kind of get through the day, but there's no there there. It's either kind of like hospital, day treatment, community program, like there, there, there's no there there. And I was like, but we need a there. What's the there? And uh, peer respite seemed to be what could be that place when you don't need hospital. That's not what I needed, but it was the only thing that could give me maybe that 24 hour for a couple days of, of uh, possibly what I needed, but it wasn't the right level. So um, when we think about all of this in a cultural context, what does that look like? Because we, we were talking about the difference between like spas and sanctuaries and spa days and that kind of respite versus kind of the deep hard work we're doing from that cultural perspective and lens. So can you share a little bit about sort of those differences? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'll first say I'm very familiar with the feeling of being in, like I call it the eye of a hurricane, everything swirling around me and just this stillness, just this overwhelming sense of powerlessness, grief, um, sometimes rage, the my, my sense of a loss of control within myself, losing touch with who I am. And I just needed someone to, to say that that was all right, that that was happening or to not try and make sense of something that I couldn't make sense of, to not make sense of it for me. Mm-hmm. Coming to the respite, I knew this is an important place. Um, I've had experiences with domestic violence. I've had experiences with housing insecurity. I didn't even have a car until a few years ago. You know, I've I didn't come into this life with a lot of things and the thing, the things that put me in crisis were not because of who I was or not even necessarily the things that happened to me. It was the conditions around me were not conducive to me being able to live a sustainable life that was, that was full of joy or they even had much in it. Mm -hmm. So when I see people coming into the respite, the first thing I think of is not what led you here. What have you been through? It's, you know, what is, what is the barrier? What what is stopping you? And what is stopping the community from embracing you? Because I also just think respites would not exist if we had a society, had a community where people had their doors open when we're in times of suffering. So I think the fact that it's standing, that it exists is just, it shows that we have a lot of work to do as, as a people. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you were talking about, sort of those structural barriers versus those um, looking at some of these issues of I even struggle with the, and what happened to you kind of question um, more around sort of, but what's happening outside that's impacting me versus what happened to me? Because then it still puts it on me. And I, I'm hearing you say, but there are other things that are outside of the person that's impacting their um, emotional well-being and their physical well-being. Right. Absolutely. And I, I don't even use the term recovery for myself. Actually, I just tell people I have a hard time living in a body. I have a hard time being in this world. My mom is actually a teacher by trade. She's a special ed teacher um, with my own neurodivergence. You know, we developed systems that work for me and she's a white woman who married a Nigerian immigrant. So she was the most imperfect teacher. But I think just like in my experience, we teach the things we need to learn. Mm-hmm. And my dad's experience um, is I think how my mom was able to teach me. Um, My dad had a significant uh, trauma from being a soldier in the Biafran conflict in 1961 that freed Nigeria from British colonization. He came here as a scholar. He got a PhD. He is a musician playing like 20 different jazz instruments, highly gifted man. He's a Marxist communist. He was 
you know, we lived overseas as a child in London and my mom saw, so I was born six months after Rodney King in Los Angeles and my mom's mm. how that ravaged my father's spirit, not understanding the violence being done unto him. And his first attempt was when I, I was uh, three years old and he put me on his lap and took a bottle of pills mm. and it became a cycle of institutionalization incarceration and a man who went from being at the top of his fraternity, you know, he's signed by Capitol records at one point. It, he was a term, he was a force to be reckoned with. Everyone knew him. All the Nigerian people that I know still know him. Even they, they, the name is an old name and he couldn't even hold a job as a custodian at a school after mm -hmm. effects of medications and how much his dignity had been stolen. And I grew up being very well aware that that was a risk for me. And my mom always said, your father was brilliant and he made some bad choices. He made some decisions in his life, but I've always understood that the conditions of which he was operating within were not built for him, were not built for him. Right. Um, they wanted compliance and he wanted liberation. And I have always, um, I, I didn't think that my story would follow in his footsteps as closely. And I had my own version of what he went through um, and I can't think of how it would have been if my mom had not known those disadvantages existed. You know, everything from the neighborhood I was in to the school district I went to, to the opportunities I had, the way I was regarded from having a different name that was clearly West African, people just misunderstanding my expressions as suffering and labeling them as harmful, a problem, abnormal, so many inappropriate totally wrong connotations. And I needed a strong fighter to say that is, that is not what you're seeing. Um, that's, that's not the story here. And most of my life has been reclaiming that story for myself. Wow. And now you're helping people reclaim their stories, right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. So talk a little bit about what happens when somebody comes into a respite. I know we, in our mental health field work, you know, our advocacy work, our peer work, we, we use a term a lot and it's like we're talking to ourselves and, you know, we know what it means, but there may be people who are not clear about what it means. And more importantly, clear about what it means when you talk about the work that you do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, define a little bit about what happens sort of in a respite or your respite in particular. Yeah. I, th I think my favorite thing about the people that come in is they all come by a variety of so many ways. I see the respite as almost a path of waymaking for people. It's this kind of self-navigation process I see that comes together so artfully. You know, some people come in because they were told to call here because some place was full. Some folks truly do just want a place to go because they are struggling with housing. And that turns into a, a very different conversation with some people when they're opened up to what we perhaps can offer and, and they don't know that human connection is even available to them. They didn't know that would come with shelter. And, and that makes it even more rich for us because um, some respites don't take folks who don't have housing. Right. We get folks who are fleeing dangerous situations, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. We get people that come because they know this is a sanctuary. They know that the only real hard line here is, you know, don't call the police on anyone. Um, that is kind of a, a no brainer. Mm -hmm. We get people that come because they're looking for peace and they're looking for choice. And some people have so many different reasons for showing up. But what I, I noticed the common thread really is, is people want to be listened to. They want to be embraced. They want to be accepted. They want to be able to come as they are. Um, so when someone comes in for a respite, you know, it's, we just sit and have coffee. Sometimes we sit on the couch, you know, we're not rushing to do the paperwork. We are not, you know, 
tell me what your date of birth is. We are not, you know, putting them in a computer registry system. It's, you know, Hey, how are you doing? It's, it's a normal conversation. It's like any other human being, I would agree as if they walked over my door sill in, into my own home, into my own community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for a lot of uh, the respites, at least many that I, that I know, you know, they're, you know, can be funded by people who want a little bit more. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay, come on. I'm just going to be blunt. This is this is my podcast. I can say whatever the heck I want to say. So, so they can be funded by, you know, uh, public dollars, like tax dollars. They can be funded by grant dollars from philanthropy. Um, sometimes that comes with those obligations of the things that you're talking about that you all don't do, um, which, you know, is like, oh, we've got to do the documentation or, oh, we have to put you in the computer system or wait a minute, I need all this information from you. And I know at our rest, but we, we were, we were funded through taxpayer dollars. So then we have to be responsive to that taxpayer. So, you know, we tried to flip how we did those things, even though we needed them. Right. So um, we would have people, you know, quote unquote, pre-register leaving off um, some of the information that was a little, we wanted to have more privacy around so that when they came into the respite, we didn't have to start with, uh, excuse me, but you need to fill out the registration form, but more like you're saying, let's have some coffee, let's chitty chat. We could gather some of the information that we needed for the form just in the conversation that we're having and go fill it out later. And then when, you know, the person was ready, we could say, you know, there's a couple of other things that would help us and blah, blah, blah. So we would find ways around still being able to meet some of these obligations, but so, so for other people who might not understand, again, these um, nuances, then how do you get funded? And then I'm sure for some people who are thinking far more traditionally, it's like, well, wait a minute, how do you get funded? Who pays for that? And what's the accountability? And oh my gosh, the, you know, what's the security and all that kind of stuff. So we actually are funded by the state and, and all those things happen. It's, it's so interesting. Ours is almost flipped. So the, the pre-screening, you know, the qualifier is like, yeah, what's your name? I think we actually do. We do ask date of birth. What are you looking to get out of respite? T- can I tell you about pure respite? So it's a little bit of education sometimes hearing. I just usually say like, what are you working with? Tell me what you're coming in here with, or what are, you know, what, what had you making this call? What, what led you to us? How did you find us? Um, and that usually opens up the floor. And then I'm usually volunteering information of uh, laying out right away that I don't expect them to share anything they don't want to with me. I'm kind of trying to return that power and equal out that differential. And because I'm thinking when I needed to go places, I do not want to see a big pamphlet with an intake survey and have somebody ask me all private information. When I'm overwhelmed, that process is unimaginable. If anything, I resent it and it actually has stopped me from accessing services. So we're just having a conversation and then I'm clarifying what a respite can and can't do. And then it's like, so you want to come? Okay, cool. Because what do you really need to know about a person before they step over your door sill? And then throughout the conversation, you know, when they first come in, it is a welcome. It is a tour. It is kind of like meeting everybody around saying hello, sitting down. And then I'm going to just kind of be real with people like, okay, so, you know, we have funding. There's some things that I kind of want to go over when it feels right for you. It doesn't have to be tonight, you know, settle in, get your bearings, kind of relax, settle into the space, take a look around, do some art projects with folks. And, you know, is there a time I can check in with you later and and we can kind of work through some of this stuff. And sometimes I read the forms out loud to people and then I'm, and then they just sign them or I'll kind of say, you know, this is the guest bill of rights. You want to read this on your own time and you want to just sign here. So we figure out people are very willing usually to go through that process. And also we have to structure it in a way where 
We're not sitting in an office at a desk with a clipboard. You know, we are at the table doing a puzzle, playing checkers, baking a cake in the kitchen in the morning. And sometimes it's just, oh, you're, oh, you know, on your way out for the work. Could you sign this real quick? Like just, just real fast. And it's, it's an afterthought. The point is the support, the paperwork is just so we can get through, go through the motions and I make it open that we're just checking off a box. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about something else we were talking about in relation to, you know, folks of color in particular and sort of how we go through different processes, how that feels different, looks different. And then our needs may also be different. I think you were talking to me about um, the focus of today, not today, the podcast, but today sort of in the United States in particular is around mental health and crisis. And so we were talking a little bit about, and and respite does fit within sort of this array of of quote unquote crisis uh, or crisis support. I'll just put it that way. But we were talking about crisis and grief and and that whole sort of um, an intergenerational trauma. You talked a little bit about the, you know, trauma with your, your, uh, that your father went through. So how does all of that kind of, like, how do we talk about that in relation to how we experience that from a cultural lens? Yeah, I think what I noticed, um, so my work is always inspired by the, the community that I work with. And I think the people that I work with teach me how to do my job. Actually, I'm learning from them what I need to be doing to, to find, to provide support and what, based on what they say is helpful, they say is beneficial. And in seeing reflections of myself at times, that's kind of where I came to where I am on where, how grief is related to crisis and how grief is related to intergenerational trauma. You know, some folks come into the respite and they're using very clinical language. You know, I'm struggling with depression. I'm having a manic episode. I'm having, and I will use the language that they say to me and I'll tell them, you know, you've shared with me that you identify as such, even if those terminologies are not what I personally relate to or how I make meaning of my experiences. And I love when I get a person that comes to the respite and says, you know, I just lost my cousin to suicide or my mom and I aren't talking, my kids and I are, we're separated and, and that is wearing on my soul, my nerves, you know, like I, I love when I hear what's really going on with that person situationally, that's led them to feel the way they feel. Cause then we can really get into the grief and, and the losses that person has incurred and how that's showing up in a state of powerlessness and leading them to feel like they don't have other options. Like they don't want to be here anymore. I don't identify with a symptom paradigm for the context of my suffering any longer. I do not use symptoms even for myself, like anxiety. I say things like I'm going really fast today. I'm feeling really low. I'm there. I'm, my heart feels heavy. And when I use that language with other people that feel like I do, the, the depth of the conversation completely changes. It's no longer about what is wrong with a person, what needs to be fixed. It was really powerful for me when someone asked me, you know, you're saying all these things and I'm hearing all these diagnoses and and symptoms. How do you want to feel? I wanted to feel joy. I wanted to feel safety. What I said was, I want to feel home. I want to feel home. And some of the respite folks will say, you know, I feel so at home. I feel like I know you or, wow, you're, you're speaking my language. Like that's my story. And it's really on that human level from a cultural perspective, you know, when we shift paradigm away from medicalized models and away from limiting beliefs, things that have boxed people into, to definitions of who they are and how they relate to themselves. Like that's when we see what some people call a breakthrough. Um, I call it for myself, just 
not even like a reawakening, but I see it as a regenerative process. It's restorative for me. It's, it's restorative justice for myself. It's a redistribution of power in my relationships. And when people come into the respite, knowing that they can have a right to feel deep emotions and crisis about a breakup, their car going out, losing a job, like that is real. And it's not about, oh, I need to take my antidepressant or I, when, when did you see your therapist last? It's, you know, tell me about what about your life? Like what, what is important to you about this? And, and what is that feeling around those things? And a lot of it's grief. A lot of it's loss. A lot of it is things ending. And a lot of it's things totally beyond that person's control. And if it is within their control, there's a sense of like, I'm bad and I'm blaming myself for my very real, very visceral reaction to something that hurts and has a reason to hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so deeply human. You know, that's like the that's part of the human experience. And you know, I do I do also struggle with this idea of removing the natural human emotions and experiences into something that is over there that, you know, that sort of medicalized maybe approach that doesn't help us get back in touch with those feelings. Because those feelings are going to happen again. They're going to happen again. And they're going to happen again. One last thing I do want to talk about, and that is that there's such an intentionality about what you all are doing. And we've heard it throughout the whole podcast. And part of it is around not using anything carceral. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about that, because I'm sure people are like, well, what do you mean you never called the police? But what is something that, you know, so so can you talk a little bit about that so people can understand that that is possible? Yes. I had a similar experience of feeling that my father was stolen from that thing that was called schizophrenia, that thing that was called schizoaffective. And he felt he was stolen from himself. And, and because he was stolen from himself, taken away from who he was, who he knew himself to be with that language and the things they did to him because of how he was showing up. That was the, that was the MO was carceral, carceral work. You know, he was, he became criminalized for his expression of suffering. Um, And actually they were spiritual experiences. He felt he was talking to the ancestors. and, And when he was thinking he was being abducted by aliens that came out of him being called an illegal alien. So he wanted, and when he said he wanted to go home to his people, he meant, I want to go back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of what it means to use a non-carceral lens is the outcomes would have been significantly different for someone like my father and other people around me had these not been being used. And when I think about a person's choice being removed from who they are, it, it's so simple as asking someone, what do you think we ought to do? What do you think you ought to do? What do you need right now? Instead of just projecting my own fear and concern, my anxiety, my, you know, when we're in states of powerlessness, that's the instinct of a lot of people is to seize control over a situation, you know, get it under control, even control myself. And I I have that still, this, this desire to handle myself kind of, and make sure that I'm in line so that nobody comes and tries to get me in line. I think that we are, have a very militarized society. It's, it's very generationally done to us, this idea that, we're responsible for other people because if we're not, then someone's going to become responsible for us. I think people are always trying to escape that inherent violence that lives in our community. So when I mean no carceral things, I mean, we directly do not connect to crisis linkage. If crisis calls the respite and says, is someone here, sir, are you lost? We are a closed record facility. Uh, we do you know, take information upon admittance, but those records are shredded. There's no reason for us to keep them here mm-hmm. to deliberately say, you know, 
it's actually not in my role and it's actually against my values to do something to you. But what I can do is offer choices, you know, and, and if something is going on with somebody and it's not okay for the rest of the community in the house, let's say other guests or other peers working there, other peer guests, like we're all, we're all people. We're going to have the discussion of, you know, you could do that, but you just can't do that here. You know, right. you can come back on doing that um, or just being real with people. Like I'm not an EMT. I am not trained in, in CPR. Well, I, I know CPR, but I'm not trained. I can't give you stitches. I can't sew you up if you decide to do this thing to yourself. And you know, what you're saying to me is something that, you know, I, I just break it down. We are regular people in a regular house on a regular street. So the, the things you get here is regular, regular support. And if you're looking for someone to control or restrict you or alter the course of your path, your journey, you're not looking for peer support, but let's talk about where that might make sense. And, and if what you're asking from us is, is what human beings as us can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even talking to them about, you know, I don't want to do that because that, that affects me too. That it hurts me to, to be put in a position for and over you. And, and I'm not comfortable with that level of responsibility over you. And I think it's sometimes the first time people have been asked to actually claim responsibility over themselves. And if they can't, then it's like, what, what do you need? If, if they don't want to, if they're not able to, what would be helpful? And what I find is just do less. If, if you feel the need to do something about a situation, that's my, that's my number one thing with staff is stop, pause, breathe. What do you need to do for yourself? Because if a person, their expression of suffering is challenging for you, there's stuff coming up for you. You feel this need to like, you know, I just call it, it's that trigger finger that people have that, that hairline, like they really feel like there has to be something to be done about this. Cause we're trained in this culture of urgency, this culture of response. We are not trained in slowing mindfully. We are not trained in curiosity. We are not a community that does those things. We are a community that's trained to take action and to, to, to execute something to, you got to yield a result. So I always tell people, you know, stay in your lane, do less. And if you feel you need to do something, maybe before you do it, ask that person, you know, if I did this, would that be even helpful? Because people know what they need. And and surprisingly, people have a hell of a lot more wherewithal about where they want to go. And nobody wants to be told what to do. Yes. People have never, people have never been given the dignity of being asked. You've, you've made it this far. You've been through so many things in your life. How are you still standing? When have you felt this way before? And if so, what did you do? What, what was the result? Let's go back there. Let's remind people of their strength. Let's remind people of their power. Let's remind people of their agency and invite them to take agency with us. Cause my agency says, I can't be responsible for, for you. And, and I won't hold that. I can't carry that. What I can do is hold that with you alongside you. I can witness that. Yeah. So I love crisis through a lens of grief because with mm-hmm. grief, words do not make sense. Action does not make sense. And when people come into the respite and they are grieving losses, they are grieving a loss of identity, a loss of personal meaning, a loss of dignity, a loss of a sense of direction over themselves, a loss of motivation, a loss of personhood is what a lot of it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, to take any action in that space is the same thing as coming in someone's house who's grieving and trying to clean it all up. You're not going to make it better. In fact, you make it worse. What that person just needs is for you to be there and nothing more. And actually your presence, your, your silence, that is the gift. Yeah. Yeah. The word listen and silent, same letters. I don't know if any, I I always love that because it reminds me sometimes the goal is just to be silent so I can listen. So if there is 
one last piece of wisdom. You've dropped tons, tons throughout this whole conversation. But if there's something, we call this part the wisdom dropping before we wrap up. If there's one thing that you would like the audience to know and or do or think about, what, what would that be? What would you tell them? It can be done. It can be created out of one person. I think I would tell them that it's possible. The world that you dream of existing, the reality you want to be yours and and for your people, your community, these alternatives, the things that make sense for what you want to do with your pain and how you want to grieve with your people, you can build the world you wish to see. And it might start with one person. When I came Uh, I don't know if I dropped the name. And when I came to Solstice House, the respite that I work at in Madison, Wisconsin, it was a predominantly white staff. I was, I think it was two people of color, including myself. And um, it was not being used the way it's being used now. The house was not a home necessarily, even to me. And to watch it grow in two years into a staff where we have three quarters people of color. We got, you know, more queer folks than just myself now. We got a couple um, people with unusual experiences, varying backgrounds, everywhere from age, early 20s into their 70s. You know, we have two Black men overnight at the respite. We have Black elders in the house. We have people that have grandmother spirits at the house. The healing that you desire, you know, they say build it and, and they will come. I say they will come if you say you wish to build it. You just have to know what the vision is. You have to follow the vision, stay anchored to the purpose. And when other people can't see that vision, You have to know there's other people looking to build just like you. You just don't know their names yet. And sometimes people need, people need to be told that somebody else even wants to do that. Um, And they need to know what it is. So I I think it's possible. And, you know, dreams are, dreams are only dreams because they're not reality. And I've had the pleasure of having some of my own dreams realized. So dreams aren't just for nothing. All right. All right. Snap, clap thumbs up the whole nine yards. That was beautiful, beautifully said. And thank you so much for sharing your journey, sharing um, about the work that you do. And and I hope giving hope to lots of people about the possibilities that are um, out there that, um, and that we can create it. Like you say, if you can dream it, you can, you can make it happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zay, for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with me. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. And for our listeners, you know what you got to do. Um, there's the share, like, subscribe, comment, all that fun stuff. But but the most important stuff is that you share the podcast with others because this is such important information that I'm sure people would love to hear. Some need to hear it, of course. Um, so we really want you to share the podcast with others. So thanks for joining us and see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Mm-hmm.